the American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 23, The U.S. Army in 1845. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Sean Worswick, in case you had forgotten that. Before we get started, let me remind you to check out our website at www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter as well if you're into the social media thing. My handle is at AmericanHisCast. When you're on the website, you'll see some of the sources used to create the season, and you can also sign up for our email updates. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, um, when you've got some time, head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. If you have a bit more time, feel free to give us a review. Those ratings and reviews actually are quite helpful in getting the word out to people who might be interested in the show. And it's it's an easy way, quick way for you to support the show without having to um, give away any money. Okay, so this week, before we get started, I want to play a great song for you. This is a song called Lonesome Valley. Now, I first heard this song in the Coen Brothers 2000 film uh, called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The song is performed by the Black Twig Pickers and comes to us courtesy of the Free Music Archive. So enjoy this and I'll see you on the other side. Before we get too much further into the actual war, I just wanted to take this episode to discuss the U.S. Army as it stood in 1845 on the eve of the war. Now, this is not the institution we think of when we think of the U.S. Army in the 21st century. Indeed, historian Peter Guardino, in his recent work on the Mexican War, titled The Dead March, calls the soldiers of the U.S. Army, quote, unlikely agents of American prosperity and freedom, end quote. And that's a great description. The two things um, the men of the army had not experienced in their lives was just that, prosperity and freedom. Furthermore, unlike the military today, the military of the 18th and 19th century was actually despised by the majority of American citizens. Now, I know that seems odd to the modern ear, but really it shouldn't. The love that Americans shower upon veterans and um, active duty military members alike that's a relatively recent phenomenon, and it can be traced back to the 1980s. In the time period we're talking about, soldiers were looked down upon. 
Historian Paul Foos, in his book, A Short Offhand Killing Affair, puts it best when he notes that in the Republican tradition, regular army soldiers were seen as excessively servile, and the army itself was thought of as an anomaly in a democratic society. Politicians did praise soldiers, as did journalists, but that praise was given to volunteer soldiers, not to members of the regular army. And it would be the regular army that would bear the brunt of the fighting in this war. Now, speaking of the regular army, what sort of individual was attracted to such a despised institution? Well, you guessed it, the lowest members of society, the people most vulnerable. Frederick Zay said that in the weeks before he enlisted in the army, he, quote, often passed out from hunger, end quote. George Ballantyne, another um, person who joined the army around this time, said that he joined up only after fruitlessly searching for a job in New York. In other words, the army was his last option. Another gentleman, Charles uh, Stratford, joined only after he was robbed and found himself destitute and unable to find a job. Finally, others noted that they only chose the army over their only other option, that being to starve to death. Um, one more indication of just how low on the social totem pole an army recruit was in a country where only 10% of the population was illiterate, 35% of the recruits could not even sign their own names to the recruiting documents. So the army mostly recruited from amongst the poor in eastern urban cities. Now again, um, referring to Peter Guardino's work, these men were those who found themselves unable to make a living in a rapidly changing economy that was characterized by wage labor. So as the United States was industrializing, not everyone was able to successfully make the switch from farming to industrial work. These men were the ones who were being left behind, at least for the time being, by the Industrial Revolution. If they could find work, it was of the most menial sort. Street cleaning, ditch digging, unloading ships, um, or perhaps serving on board a whaling ship. Of course, the problem with most of these jobs is they were often poorly paying jobs, they were extremely taxing on your body physically, and often they were just temporary. Now, we have spoken before about the Industrial Revolution. In the 1840s and 1850s happened to be a transitionary period for textile laborers and others as well. And so as production increased in the decades before this, the demand for labor also increased. This meant laborers were able to move around, more and they were able to seek the best wages possible. But by the 1840s, things were changing. Again, according to Paul Foos, booming immigration transformed the demographics of the labor mills and meant that laborers lost the upper hand. Slowly but surely, wage work was being linked to immigrants and that helped to stigmatize labor in the minds of natives. Finally, centers of say mining or canal building, railroad building, just like military camps, um, they, were, they were often set apart from the rest of society. Thus, the men of these camps were often isolated from friendly or unfriendly encounters with the rest of society. Their everyday lives consisted of backbreaking labor by day, drinking, and roughhousing at night. Now, to make matters worse, by the 1840s, canal investment and construction work fell, thanks in part to the Depression of 1837. This meant that contractors and subcontractors who were able to get jobs had to extract every last bit of profit they could from that one. The scarcity of work at this point meant that benefits such as whiskey and free food for the workers 
that those things were eliminated. So what you have is essentially a large labor pool, few jobs um, for the members of that pool. So this means one of two things, or this means two things. Number one, wages are depressed because there is an oversupply of labor. And number two, those laborers are willing to take jobs they'd normally not take. It also meant they were prime candidates for military recruiters. Now, having been a Navy recruiter myself, I can tell you those are the people Navy recruiters were looking for. People a little bit down, ready, needing a job. What was interesting is that some Americans conflated military service in the 1840s with slavery. For example, abolitionists and peace advocates championed the end of military relics such as flogging. They argued that the lash was the crowning symbol of servility and its use was not part and parcel of a free and civil society. So we've mentioned the regulars for the most part hailed from eastern cities and were also reliant on immigrants filling the ranks. As for their opposite number, the volunteer forces, these were mostly from the south and the west. In May 1846, once war was declared, Polk issued a call for 50,000 volunteers. This was met with general enthusiasm, especially in the south and the west. The first troops were initially drawn from Texas and Louisiana on either three-month or six-month enlistments. And many of these were ordered to return home when the volunteer bill finally passed Congress, the reason being that the law called for a minimum of 12-month enlistments, as a three-month or a six-month term would be an inconvenience to the government. It would be a waste of money. Now, to our modern mind, the idea of volunteer militia and the militia system of the 19th century might seem strange, but it was the bedrock, at least theoretically, of republicanism, little r republicanism, and had deep roots in Anglo-American society. And while many volunteer state militia companies paraded in full regalia, the reality was that the system did not provide the manpower needed for the war. Further, this system was not what would be needed to invade a foreign country. It was often only ceremonial in function, and when there were full-on militia companies, they were too democratic. So while the concept of volunteerism would be honored in rhetoric, it would not be allowed to prevent the efficient functioning of a wartime army. Now, I mentioned Republican theory a moment ago, and I want to go deeper into that now. Republican tradition, since the time of the Romans, had celebrated volunteer militias and armies as the, quote, symbol and bulwark of popular governments, end quote. In the United States, this strain of political thought had come down from the Renaissance through the English Civil War and the American War for Independence. Some of the thoughts on soldiers, some of the negative ideas about them, came down from none other than Niccolo Machiavelli. He felt that professional soldiers were not full citizens of the Republic for two reasons. Number one, they had a fixed interest in war, and number two, they lacked a stake in civil society. Taken together, these things meant that they pursued war to its fullest extent, and their interests often parted ways with the interests of the state. He also felt that a citizen who was only involved in commercial interests made a poor citizen. Thus, according to Machiavelli, the idea was a citizen soldier, or the ideal, I should say, was a citizen soldier, with both civic and private interests. This person made for the best or the most effective defender of the state. And this dislike for the idea of a standing army extended all the way to the 17th century in England uh, and the political thinkers of that time. They saw the idea of a standing army as tied to despotism and corruption. So you get Cromwell's new model army in the 1640s. They kind of established a new model, and that was the model of volunteerism. Whereas armies had traditionally recruited from amongst the jailbirds and the paupers of the kingdom, 
the English Civil War made volunteerism the foundation of the revolution. By the time of the American War for Independence, these ideas about volunteerism were embedded in the American psyche. However, as Britain and its commercial empire expanded, this belief, at least in England, changed. There, so-called court thinkers such as Charles Davenant began to justify the existence of state-controlled military, particularly naval power. Fast forward to the mid-19th century. While the federal government continued to pay lip service to the idea of volunteerism, it relied upon regulars when military action was needed. Even the Jeffersonians put their Republican rhetoric aside and used the military when needed. Two such instances were in 1808 to enforce the embargo against Britain, and again in the War of 1812, in which the regulars were the backbone uh, in military operations against the British Empire. Eventually, the idea of universal militia died in the American Republic, if for no other reason due to the cost. Again, referencing Foos, the cost of equipment and uniforms, as well as the time lost from productive work, could be an enormous burden. Further, those who could not afford to pay a substitute to take their place resented the fact that the wealthy could simply buy their way out of compulsory military service. By the 1830s, paid deferments were common in Pennsylvania, again, if one could afford it. It was at this time, the late 1830s and the early 1840s, that the old system finally fell into neglect and state governments, favoring the idea of volunteer companies, began levying a tax on men who did not participate in a volunteer unit. Okay, so that's our look at the U.S. Army and the militia or the volunteer system as it existed in the mid-19th century. And there's a ton of stuff that I really haven't talked about when it comes to the Army at this point, uh, but we'll address those issues as needed when we move through the narrative. At this point, I simply wanted to give you a look at the convoluted system that was in place and kind of give you a feel for what Americans thought of their soldiers when war broke out. Until next time, this is the American History Podcast. I'm Sean, and I wish all of you a great day.